I, I don't know what the record is, but I, I feel like it's the most relatable to anybody who feels hopeful and also hopeless and also the seven stages of grieving or it's the most all, human. all the things we're all going through together. Hello and welcome back to the Ear Fuel Podcast. As always, I'm Joel Freemark, and you can follow me on Twitter at at GetEarFuel and at The Daily Guru. The podcast is always available in the iTunes and Google Play stores under Ear Fuel and at GetEarFuel.com. What you heard at the top was a clip from my interview with the band Lion Eyes. It is always a great time when they stop by to chat, and we will get to that entire interview after we check out a new album. I was going to review the new Gogol Bordello record as they're one of the best live bands on the planet, but the album is embarrassingly bad. Embarrassingly bad. And that kind of continues their studio missteps for nearly a decade now. Not even worth my time. Then I was going to talk about the new Queens of the Stone Age record, but it's basically the same record they've already made a few times. It's nothing new, and to be honest, I'm really beginning to wonder if Josh Homme is capable of writing songs under five minutes long. Most of the tracks on this album really overstay their welcome, and again, I want to bring you something you do want to hear, so we're going to skip that as well. Thankfully, there are tons of new albums coming out over the next few weeks. It's a great time to be into music, so the album I am going to talk about today is the new release from Neil Young, and it's called Hitchhiker. This isn't really a new record, so to speak, because it was recorded in one shot back in August of 1976, but they didn't release it at the time because the label executives felt it was more like demo recordings than a proper album, and there's a lot of truth behind that thought. As the story goes, Neil Young and producer David Briggs would often record on full moon nights, and Briggs basically hit record, then told Neil to just, well, I guess kind of do something, you know, be, be a musician. And this time around, it was magic. These songs do sound like demos because they basically are. He was making them up on the spot. And it's also pretty obvious he's high on a lot of these takes. Now, for most artists, that can make an album almost feel like more of a novelty than a quality record. But at their core, these are damn good songs and solid performances. I think to a certain extent, you can see this in the same vein as Springsteen's Nebraska, which came out a number of years later, as the songs manage to walk that line between demo and ideal final take. It's the stillness and simplicity combined with the overall raw feeling that make these songs so special, and this is just a rare snapshot of a true artist at work. Many of the tracks he recorded did appear on later records in different forms, but the album does post a pair of never-before-released songs in the form of Hawaii and Give Me Strength, both of which I believe have made live appearances a number of times over the years, maybe under different names. Now, I will say, Neil is a very polarizing person. He has a lot of different sounds, a lot of different faces of his music, but this is my favorite Neil Young sound. It's just him and a guitar. What more do you need? When you take everything together here, if this is what Neil Young considers unreleasable, I'd really like to hear what else he has in his vault. 
if you love the Harvest record, which you should, because it's an amazing recording, and you're just kind of into that Neil and a piano, Neil and a guitar, the the bandless version of Neil Young, this is an album you really need to check out. And to tell you the truth, there's not much more you can say about this. It's Neil Young and a guitar. Either you love that sound or you don't. And if you do, go grab Hitchhiker, as you will be very, very, very happy that you did. Moving on. The brand new album from Lion Eyes is here. It's called Nuclear Soul. Now, on the next episode, I'm going to be reviewing the record in full, but I'll tell you right now. If you like raw, authentic rock and killer riffs, this record is for you. Over the past decade or so, Lion Eyes have been focusing and refining their sound to the point that they're now one of the most original and exciting rock bands around. The other week, I had a chance to chat with them about the new record, defying genres, the world around us right now, and much more. So the new record, uh, Nuclear Soul, it's a concept record, yeah? Uh, Loosely? uh, I don't think it started out that way. I think it became evident, like three quarters of the way through making it that a lot of what the songs were about were the same thing. Mm -hmm. You know, we didn't set out to make a concept record. It just kind of happened. It just so happened that a lot of the themes were the same and a lot of the lyrics were about the same idea. When did you guys start writing and recording this? Just right after the voyage. Yeah, like pretty much immediately after we put the voyage out. Even some of the stuff was cut, you know. Yeah, some of it definitely was. Not cut, but stuff that was being worked on. Earlier from the void, yeah. So even so, it's kind of become frighteningly prophetic in a way over kind the of, last eight or nine months. Yeah, it's kind of always like that. They'll, albums always overlap a little bit. We have a hard time rehearsing to rehearse. Uh, our rehearsals tend to just be writing a lot of the time. Yeah, so. and when, from a lyrical point of view, uh, me and Nate write the lyrics, and for my part of it, I was quite disturbed. And inspired from the very early going by what was happening uh, with Trump. So a lot of that, like going back to, I mean, when did he come down that fucking escalator? Was, wasn't that like 2015? Yeah, it was 2015, I think. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so as early as that started happening, I was, uh, that was something that was on my mind. So it's not surprising that as time went on that that disturbance kept growing. You guys, you know, this record has been a long time in progress and in process, but you guys have released a number of, you know, the EP, you know, coming off of, you know, then Jetpack soundtrack was in there at the, you know, the tail end of that. So is this kind of a combination of songs you've written along the way? Is there stuff that was kind of originally written for other records? Shame, shame came from a dub thing that Chris made on an iPad, right? Didn't, yeah. didn't you, you created... Something like, yeah, shame was something. Uh, Chris had, we were, I think that comes from, does that go back to Warp Tour? Yeah, we were messing with that on the Warp Tour. That goes back to Warp Tour. Chris had made, we were making instrumental stuff on the iPad to pass time, and I think shame, ain't it a shame, comes from a dub track he made in GarageBand. And we decided that was awesome and wanted to play it. And then it sort of evolved. But I don't think anything else was. Saved from earlier, or maybe a couple of riffs here and there. Probably, probably cannibalizing some riffs, yeah. but you guys keep developing your sound in in this very interesting way. If we look all the way back to you know 2012 and even before that, what's inspiring you guys in music these days? I think Nate has something to say about that. I think we, I think we had kind of gotten to a point right around Warp Tour where we were kind of hungry for 
something new that was inspiring and not really finding it. And I think it's kind of what our natural instinct is to kind of always go back to the things that we got us into music in the first place. So uh, Leonard Skinner and Thin Lizzy and Joe Cocker and Deep Purple and things of that nature, I think, started to creep back into how do you write a how do you write a great song? Pink like, Floyd, how, too. I think Pink Floyd was a definite. Yeah. Um, and I, the Beatles, stuff like that. And I think, I think for this record in particular, it became, how do we write a great song and examine it from that aspect and not from any other, like that's the foundation of each tune is the melody and starting from there. Mm-hmm. It was also very inspiring to see a tribe called Quest return with We Are... We the people. We are the people. Is it? I think it's, I think it's we the people. Okay. We are the people. Um, it's a great record. We, we the people. That. We it, the people. It's yeah. Incredible. Yeah. And to to see that them come back with that, it was refreshing, and uh, it was new. So more specifically, that album was very inspiring. Kind of let you guys just throw everything in the past, keep it there, and and really look at things from a new perspective. Yeah, and we also. I mean, we're <laughs> in terms of our lifetimes, we're living in a unique moment. Uh, in in American history and the connection between rock music and protest music and politics was not lost on us, I don't think. You know. so, do you feel this is a, this is a protest record? Not intentionally. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think we set out to do. We set out to just write really good songs that sure. we thought were really good. But I think that it would. I could always speak for me. It's impos- It's a thing that's impossible to ignore. When you're making art right now, it's an impossible thing to ignore. So it's more just expressing whatever is on your mind, both instrumentally and lyrically. And, and the album title, Nuclear Soul, where, who's responsible for that one? A whiteboard. Yeah, it's a lyric in one of the songs. Yeah. yeah, and it's a, yeah. We debated a long time about what to call the record. We had a whole list of you know, various phrases and, and things that we were coming up with. And that's that's the one that just stuck as being sort of the most overarching, uh, correct mm-hmm. representation of what. Yeah, and that song itself, you know, I think, is, is the is the most apolitical of all of them. That song, lyrically, I was just trying to, I was trying to write something resembling a love song in a post-apocalyptic kind of way. It didn't have a, a political statement, but it just sort of seemed to capture the vibe of the record. If it makes you feel any better, literally in my notes, I wrote futuristic love song. So, Well, there you go. So, so that clear, worked out then. It worked. Way to go on that one. Yeah. Um, the art for the album is pretty wild. Did, you know, was, did someone get to hear the record and then make it, or how, how did that come to be? Yeah, that's our, our buddy Nick Lack, who's done, he did the Destruction Manual record and the Space Pope record. Uh, and yeah, we gave him the songs to listen to, and th- that's pretty much what he came up with. I think he worked with Hank a bit with concepts. We cooked, we cooked up a, we cooked up a little sci-fi backstory, uh-huh. uh, which if you get the pre-order of the record is, expl- is fleshed out in the little comic book that you get. But we um, basically, I that guy on the front is imagine imagine a, a global a global government. Okay. And the kind of global leader you wouldn't you wouldn't want, and that's that guy. Okay. Yeah. I, I 
the first time I saw it, I was like, okay, this is this is going to be amazing because the, the, the cover is just so fucking great. Um, so when you guys were recording this, did you guys have any different process than you've taken in the past? A little bit. Yeah. We, we played a lot of the songs live okay. before we recorded them because we've found in the past that we'll write the songs and record the songs and put the record out and then start playing them live and then come up with all kinds of great shit that works in front of a crowd. Mm-hmm. So we tried to work in some of that stuff beforehand mm-hmm. uh, for this one. We also recorded largely live. Okay. Uh, we tracked all the instruments together in a room live. We didn't we, uh, do a whole lot of individual part editing. We rehearsed We rehearsed this stuff more than we ever rehearsed anything. Right. We just sat in the practice room and just played the songs, which we don't usually do. Mm-hmm. Don't we, have the yeah, patience for that normally. Yeah, and we beat them up with JP more than I think we ever beat up any of the other arrangements for any other uh, the other times we worked with JP. I mean, we really kicked the shit out of those arrangements with JP several times. Yeah, things changed a lot. A, a bunch of the songs went through a couple different iterations. You know, full part changes, chorus changes, stuff like that, you know? Just to make sure it all was ideal, you know? Any part that seemed whatever was immediately changed, you know? Yeah. There's no room for Okayness. All killer, no filler. All killer, no filler. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just like some 41. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Just exactly like that record. Good, good call out. Good call out there. Sure, they made up that term. Sure. Yeah, yeah. it was never around before that. So you guys have had these songs out for a little while. Um, do you guys at the moment have favorite songs to play live from the record? My favorite one to play live. Actually, my favorite one to play live at the moment is Fire in Athena. Just because I like watching people respond to it. Uh huh. Yeah, I don't know if I have a favorite of the new songs. Mostly it's it's not so much finding a favorite, but singling out the ones that don't like playing anymore mm-hmm. and figuring out a way to get everybody to stop playing them. Right. Yeah. Sure, sure, sure. <laughs> Convince Which everyone else in the band. Hey, guys. the new songs. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Let's, yeah, let's yeah, leave yeah. that one off tonight. Right, right, sure, right. sure. Um, as a band that is largely just rock and roll, um, how do you guys deal with kind of that mentality in 2017 that, you know, Rock mu- great rock music is. Are you talking about anymore. Gene Simmons? Sure, he'll work. We'll go with that. <laughs> you know, he he basically, you know, that's dead. Punk rock is dead. The album is dead. Those guys have been playing to backing tracks since the eighties, though. Right. You know, I don't tend to take my their opinion. Yeah, <laughs> I don't tend to take my musical advice from coffin salesmen. <laughs> I think there's two schools of thought, right? You have Gene Simmons of Kiss, who says rock and roll is dead, and you have Neil Young, who said, "Hey, hey, my my, rock and roll will never die." Sure, pick one. Yeah, yeah. Um, as far as I'm concerned, rock and roll is alive and well. So, but, I mean, what are we talking about anyway? We're just talking about you're just talking about different ways to play a song. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? There's no types of songs that there's no genre that will that will die if they have good songs. Good songs are songs, however you play them. Yeah, it's, it's, just it's nonsense. Tr- trying to classify them yeah. as they will. It's arbitrary. To make orders to rock and roll is just meaningless. Yeah, I mean, every, everything could be rock and roll. Yeah. Or well, jazz one. If or you heard, if you heard, if you heard Little Richard today, you'd be like, you. No one would call it rock and roll if someone put out a Little Richard sounding record right now. Sure. They'd call it oldies or were they? They whatever. It wouldn't be neo soul. Or, whatever they yeah, would. Call, so. All those labels are have have never suited us much or been very interesting to us. I mean, we've never been particularly. Genre specific as a band, we're just trying to write good songs. Songs that you love, yeah, yeah. and it comes through. Um, so you guys spent a lot of time in Europe over the last few weeks, few months. 
Do you guys see differences in the audiences at your shows here versus in Europe and just, you know, kind of their attitude and, and all that? Definitely the UK, the UK and, and Greece, uh, in our experiences, it seems to be way more enthused about rock music than the States are at this point in time. Mm-hmm. I can say that from our anecdotal experience. Sure, sure. You know. Certainly seem more willing to show up to our gigs. Uh-huh. You know, I, it was funny. A couple of years ago when we talked, uh, we were discussing kind of the advantages of having Spotify and things like that because it was the early days. And, you know, you guys were talking about how right, it's right. great. You know, we can get we can get our music to them. It's a it's a lot easier um, with the developments and streaming across the board now. You know, have you guys seen changes in how you guys can kind of share your music and interact with your fans? Yeah, I don't know. I think that you're you just have to live with the, the times, you know, and use what use what you've got to put it out there. You definitely can't stop people from stealing it. Uh-huh. Right. You can encourage them not to, but... Really, you just want to encourage everyone to listen to it and hope yeah. they show up to your gig. It's the same difference if you really believe in what you're doing. The more people that hear it, the better off we'll be. Uh, obviously, you'd like every person that would stream it to actually go out and buy it, but you can't control that. They won't. Yeah. I'd way rather them come to a show and buy a T-shirt and buy a vinyl... And just buy tickets and tell their friends. Uh, to us, it's about a collective, uh, and any business too. It's like Pizza Hut makes as much money selling sodas and iced tea as they do pizzas. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because of the margin. So we look at it like it's the total. It's the sum of all the parts. It's not record sales aren't going to cripple us or put us into the next hemisphere. It's all of it. If you stream it, buy a T-shirt. If you buy a T-shirt, wear it to the show or tell a friend. If you come to the show, you know maybe buy the record when you come. It's not a, it's not an end-all, be-all scenario to me. So since you said kind of it's it's not, it wasn't meant to be a protest record. It wasn't meant to be a concept album in the beginning. What do you feel it is now when you look at that record? Other than you know the new songs that you love in that, what what do you guys feel is the essence of this record? I think we all might have four different answers to that oh, question. Oh, perfect. I I was just telling Nate yesterday, uh, like two or three days ago was the first time that I listened to the album since, uh, when was it? We, we March. it was, yeah, yeah, March. We probably got back in February or March yeah, or something. so almost, so I, uh, six months or so. Just took a break. Because like Hank said, we, you know, it was, it was a pretty intense process of just hammering these tunes. And when you listen to the same tunes over and over again, you lose perspective, uh, right? Yeah, you kind of lose perspective. So a break was pretty good. And a, a few days ago, I listened to the whole album, and I think it it all seems like one thing. It's not like uh, random random thoughts here and there just spurs through the album. I think sure. it's it's it, it all fits. It's all good. The art's there. That matches. So for me, it's nothing more than just an album that it flows well. It, it's a great album. Yeah, I think it's... It don't. We kind of wrote it to feel like a, a set, you know, like a festival set, sure. maybe, you know, with a lot of ebb and flow and emotional ups and downs, you know. And the interludes are there to sort of, you know, get, give you the feel of being in the room. You know, since we did record it all live, we were all in a room together. Mm-hmm. So it's cool to give, uh, you know, all those tape winding of, of all that. That stuff is actually the tape. That we recorded to, you know, we did, I mean, we sampled. Sure, yeah. of it. and you hear doing that, but it is the real thing. And there's us rehearsing in there, and there's JP giving right. notes in the room that you can hear when you listen to those. So we wanted it to feel personal, 
Like you're you're with the band. Sort of like the way, you know, like Dark Side of the Moon kind of feels that Sure. Way. You just feel like you're in it. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Every record to me is a moment in time, right? The record's never finished. Like no matter what you make, you make a record, you put it out, two years later you're like, I should have done that thing. Yeah. All it is inevitably is just like a moment in time. And to me it's just about whether that moment in time captures who you are as a band and where where you are in life and, and, and what's going on in the world around you. And to me, this is the best we've done at synthesizing all of that stuff. What the world we're living in is, what we're experiencing, and putting that all into a coherent thing about who we are, where we are, and what's going on in the world. In that context, a lot of the songs are, are you could view them as protest songs, but I simply view it as this is the record where we're best able to understand ourselves and present it to other people as here's who we are and here's where we are and here's what's going on. I think the record is a, is a summation of everything everyone said so far. It's a reflection of four people trying to suffer and rejoice through the heartbreak of making music for a living and trying to accomplish that. And also we're part of the same thing that's happening in the country politically and we're part of the same thing that's happening in the world because now we're touring. It's, it's, it's the summation of all of our parts together as the universe is getting to that place that where we're meeting it, if that makes sense. The song Fire in Athena is about something that happened in the 60s in Greece where a student was killed by a fascist regime. But if you sit back and listen to the song, you could easily imagine that that song's about what happened in Charlottesville or what happened in Spain the other day. Or what happened or in Phoenix last night. What happened in Phoenix. And I, so I, what I really think, to, to piggyback on what Hank said, it's, it's, a, it's a snapshot because we're living through these experiences too and some songs are very emotionally uh, on the nose and raw and some songs take those emotions and tell a story. I just think it's... Uh, it's prob- I, I don't know what the record is, but I, I feel like it's the most relatable to anybody who feels, you know, hopeful and also hopeless and also, you know, the the... T- seven stages of grieving or it's the all, most human. all the things we're all going through together. Yeah. And even from the other side, if you're, if you are totally stoked with what's going on politically, you might also feel like looking at it from that paradigm where you feel like you've, something's been ripped away from you, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So it's just a summation of the four dudes in a van trying to write a good tune. Yeah. I don't think we, it's true that we didn't mean to write a protest record, but we did mean to write a culturally relevant record. You know, and I think for us, culturally relevant ha- happens to coincide with the protest record. In a <laughs> right, lot right, of right, ways. right. Sure. sure. My thanks again to the guys from Lion Eyes for sitting down to chat. Make sure you go grab the new album. You're going to love it. And you can find them on social media under Lion Eyes Music. That's L-I-O-N-I-Z-E Music or just Lion Eyes. Now, before we wrap the episode, I do, of course, have your weekly Ear Fuel listening assignment. 
For those of you new to the podcast, each week I sign an album to listen to in full, beginning to end, without any distractions or interruptions. It stems from the fact that these days, music has been largely relegated to a background task. You're at the gym, you're at work, you're out driving, whatever. And this assignment is about taking some time each week to consciously listen to music for the sake of music alone. This week, because I've been playing it a ton lately, your listening assignment is the Gun Club's fantastic 1981 album, Fire of Love. To define the Gun Club is difficult. It's somewhere between punk and rockabilly, psychobilly, country, roots, blues. There's just a lot going on in these songs. All of it is amazing. If you don't know the Gun Club, they were part of that overly creative early 80s L.A. scene that birthed bands like X, the Blasters, and the Cramps, among a lot of others. And the Gun Club were certainly one of the best. And this is bar none their finest musical moment. The guitar work on this record gives you everything from crushing chords to wild riffs and solos. And from the get-go, this record hooks you, pulls you in really close, and you just can't get enough. I love the rhythm section on this record as they keep things just dangerous enough. The grooves are always there and you just get locked in with them. It's so good. There's just this creative courage and chemistry between the musicians that you rarely hear anywhere else in music history. And that allows them to really push these songs all over the place. You've got the controlled chaos and hairpin tempo shifts and mood swings on preaching the blues a really cool frenzied pace on Ghost on the Highway. There's almost a Velvet Underground getting electrocuted feel on Goodbye Johnny. They just present this style in so many different ways. You're gonna love it. And that's not to mention my favorite two songs on the album. She's Like Heroin to Me and the outright anthemic sex beat. Perfect songs everybody needs to know. Adding to the top-notch musicianship, in front of the band, you have the unbeatable Jeffrey Lee Pierce on vocals. He's got this style, this attitude, this lyricism, just everything that knows no equal. It's like he's always on the verge of a nervous breakdown or just going crazy, and it's a very cool vocal performance. His energy and just the intrigue of his voice are one of the biggest hooks on Fire of Love, and while his words are darker than most of his contemporaries, it's going to draw you in, and it adds the perfect finishing touch to all of these songs. Fire of Love is just one of those records that captures a group of musicians at their creative peak, pushing the boundaries of music and almost creating an entirely new style all at once. So many later bands point to this record as a touchstone. I mean, you can hear the Reverend Horton Heaton here, the Pixies, you can hear the White Stripes, really any band that has attitude with a guitar and don't push all the way into punk rock, they probably love the Fire of Love record. I really can't explain why Fire of Love has flown under the radar all of these years because it is a masterpiece. It's a very cool album that people with all sorts of musical tastes can get into. And if somehow you don't already spin it regularly, you need to change that right now. Thank me later. So that's all for this week. My thanks again to Lion Eyes for stopping by. Make sure you go get that record. You won't be sorry. As always, the podcast is available in the iTunes and Google Play stores, along with at GetEarFuel.com, and you can find me on Twitter at at GetEarFuel and at The Daily Guru. That is your weekly Ear Fuel. Share and enjoy. Enjoy.